1: Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to... Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code Ninja 21
2: He got the yeast from a neighbor, and then his brother got yeast from uh, their uncle. Every single household outside of uh, the cities uh, was actually brewing. There's a lot of uh, unexplored potential here that we haven't really made full use of yet.
0: Remember learning about Kvike back on episode 102? Well, this week on the show, we catch up with the man who tracked down these yeast and has helped to reinvigorate a traditional farmhouse brewing culture that nearly died out. You'll also hear about a time when it was illegal not to brew Christmas beer.
2: Hi, I'm Lars-Marie Skarshol. I'm the author of Historical Brewing Techniques and uh, the Lars Blog blog on historical farmhouse
0: brewing. Lars, you've played an important role in regards to the modern understanding of Norwegian farmhouse yeast. Tell us about yourself as well as when and where you first encountered these farmhouse yeasts. And I suppose you probably encountered the beers before the yeast, right?
2: Uh, Yes and no. Um, So I was a a beer enthusiast, I guess we can say. I, I was interested in Uh, Trying different kinds of beers, traveling to different countries and, you know, trying out what they had. Um, And it was in Lithuania that I first kind of realized that uh, traditional beers were something completely different from modern beers. And that's when I really started to become curious about the Norwegian traditional beers. Uh, But the first ones I tried were all made with uh, ordinary yeast either uh, brewers yeast or baking yeast and so i think no i don't think i'm absolutely sure that the first time i tasted a beer made with traditional uh traditional norwegian yeast was actually in uh, sigmund Jarnes's cellar on the day that we were brewing together with him and and that uh, i first actually came across the yeast you know in, in the wild as it were
0: and you knew when you when you um, as soon as you encountered it, you knew there was something unique about this, I assume.
2: Yeah, uh, so Sigmund had told us that his, rec- his recipe was juniper branches, Pilsner malts, his own yeast, and uh, sauce hops. And then <laughs> we get this uh, old beer. I mean, it was just the dregs in his tanks. That's that why he was brewing. Uh, but it smelled of oranges exactly so he's like oh what what (laughs) (laughs) and then um of course of course the next day when so he mashes overnight that's kind of a weird detail so the next morning while he's boiling the wort he brings out this one liter glass full of yeah it looks like yellowish brown mud basically and it's, it was when I saw that that I realized that, oh, they're, they're, these guys are not making it up. They do have their own yeast.
0: Yeah, that didn't come from a store. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that didn't come from a store. It was something about just the matter-of-factness of it. And the, the, what, it looked really, I don't, I don't know how to put it, but it didn't, it didn't look like normal yeast at all. And then, of course, next to it, they had a, a, a four-liter plastic canister with more. And I was also a uh, normal people don't have four liters of uh of yeast just lying around at home uh, and and of course, then just before we were leaving he was um he was wrapping up his fermenter in this uh, uh insulating foam sheet, and we were looking at that and going like. People usually, like, why why are you doing this? People usually worry about it, uh, you know, being too warm. And he was the other way. No, no, I don't want it to be too cold. And that's when uh, uh, Martin saint who was with me on this trip, asked, so what's your pitch temperature? And he says 39C. (laughs) And uh, and of course, uh, the way I remember it, we are just, you know, staring blankly at him. And there's quiet for a while. And then he says, well, uh, my brother measured it during fermentation to 42. Like, like he's just said something wrong and he needs to make it better. And it's like 42. Yeah, that's, that's much better, Sigmund.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so did you, uh, did you ask him, you know, Hey, where does this, where did you get this yeast? Where did it come from? Or did you, yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh,
2: and, and, you know, we've collected a lot of these by now, like 35 different cultures. And I always do that, like ask the person, and then uh, call whoever they got it from, and just follow the chain like that. And and it's always the same. You get to somebody who's dead. <laughs> so uh, with with one exception actually, and that was one guy who uh, who came to a homebrewing festival, and and someone said that he had he had farmhouse yeast, and then when I call him, he says, "Yeah, yeah, I bought it in the store seven years ago." It's like okay <laughs> fair enough we were we were misled about you that's fine <laughs> but uh sigmund um, got it it always gets kind of complicated with these things so it turns out the full story is something like he got the yeast from a neighbor and then his brother got yeast from uh their uncle and then these two ended up being mixed and that's what they're using now <music>
0: We already heard about some of the different ingredients and processes used to brew these beers back on episode 102 with Richard Priest. But is there anything interesting you would like to share with us about how these beers are typically made?
2: Uh, well, I guess the, the the first typical thing is that there's there's nothing. There's no typical, typical right? <laughs> no, I, I, variation in process in farmhouse brewing is much greater than than in uh, commercial brewing. So I guess in Norway, you could say that there is, uh, there is an east-west divide in mashing techniques. So in, in, in the west, you use infusion mashing. And in the east, uh, people use, I call it complex mashing, because it can be decoction or uh, step mashing in the kettle with a lot of steps or several different kind of complicated processes. And then you have the, the issue of, do you boil the wort, do you not boil the wort? Uh and then of course occasionally you find somebody who just does something totally different from all of that because say they ferment in the mash.
0: Wow. So yeah. <laughs> um I, I didn't I I I didn't ask you this already. So um you said you were a beer enthusiast. Were you already homebrewing before you encountered these beers or uh did that come later?
2: Well, I didn't. Um uh, I'd I had friends who were homebrewers, okay. and I, I brewed with them, so I knew the process. And I'd also taken the um, Norwegian version of the BJCP program, so I was a certified judge. and So I, I understood the basics, uh, I would say, um, without being any sort of expert on brewing.
0: You understood enough to know that 39C sounded a little crazy for fermentation temperature.
2: Yeah, and also that uh, I mean, Sigmund does other weird things. Like he mashes for six hours, and uh, he boils for four. So like half his wort actually just goes up in the air. Uh, I knew that was special as well.
0: Okay, Lars, uh, tell us what exactly is the farmhouse yeast registry?
2: Um, it's yeah. Originally, it was really easy. We had we knew about three farmhouse yeasts. It's easy to keep track of those, and then you know one more shows up, and then another, and another, and people started getting confused about the differences between the various ones. And so I decided, let's have a list, and let's have it online, and you know let's use numbers and and try and be precise. And then that helped because you know people could then more easily agree on which yeast they were talking about, and then uh they started you know one thing to know okay where where does this one come from where does that one come from what's the pitch temperature for this uh where do you harvest this one how so i uh, i put all that stuff in there as well so basically it's a it's a repository of all the cultures that we know about and kind of in summary form everything that we know about each
0: and how many is that so far
2: Well, if we count absolutely everything, it's 64. But some of those are wild uh, strains, it should be said.
0: Your TQ article mentions that farmhouse brewing has largely skipped a generation. What happened?
2: It's basically been dying out since the 1850s. So we started out in a situation where every single household outside of the, uh, the cities uh was actually brewing so you know there was a long way to go down but really things have just been declining and declining and for some reason uh there's kind of this pattern that when modernity set in and it became it actually became fashionable to buy food because it showed that you were rich enough to do it um it seems that there was a generation that kind of associated brewing your own beer with with poverty and and backwardness and they didn't they didn't want anything to do with it uh and then quite a few people they then learned from their grandparents so it's it skipped the generation and and survived in that way
0: okay you started to tell us um you know an overview of the information that you're collecting about each yeast culture but give us some more details there what what's all the information you're collecting about each each culture
2: It's the number of strains for each. Uh, It's the pitch temperature. It's whether the owner harvests at the top or the bottom, and also when they harvest. Um, We collect whether they boil the wort. We try to collect where it comes from. Uh, So, like the origin story that I told you for Sigmund's yeast is uh, is a classic example. Um, Also, uh, what the main species is, whether it's part of the Craig family, did they find bacteria during the analysis. Uh, I also record any permissions uh, that the owners kind of grant to the world as a whole. Uh, I have this form that I ask them to sign. Um, there's probably more that I can't remember off the top of my head.
0: Let's hear a little bit about each of the groups of cultures within the registry.
2: Ah, oh, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one. So the one that most people have heard of is is the one that we call quake, and the definition of it is simply genetic. Um, because when uh, Richard Priest did the the genetic analysis, we found that every quake is more closely related to the other quakes than to any other yeast, and Absolutely every single yeast that we collected from Western Norway was from this family. So it's it's a subgroup of what's called the Beer One family of, of uh, brewing yeasts. So you see, it, they are actually related to you know uh, Nottingham USO five and and all of these yeasts. Um. Yeah. So that's the first group, and then uh, we have three cultures that have been collected from Russia, specifically from from a region called Chuvashia, about 600 kilometers east of Moscow on the Volga River. Uh, And then there's a group from Lithuania and Latvia. And finally, we have two groups from from Eastern Norway. So one of those is called Gong, and uh, we know it's related to Kveik, but it's also Noticeably different. There's an easy genetic test that will tell you which is which. Uh, and then the final group is one that's called Baidum, also from Eastern Norway, uh, where the analysis hasn't been done, so I know nothing.
0: And your article indicated that um, out of the cultures there, the the folks who own them aren't aren't terribly interested in sharing the details, right?
2: Some of them have been very restrictive, and uh, but then others. Uh, after I wrote that, I, I actually traveled to this region, which is in, um, uh, it's kind of, it's this, uh, as high as you can go in Eastern Norway before, uh, populated areas kind of end in the uh, empty mountain plateau. Uh, and I spoke to some people there and they were oh no, no, we'll, we're happy to share. And yeah, please tell us what this is. We'd really like to know. And so people are different. It turns out, and some of them are quite open
0: in. I think you also wrote that the, the, these farmhouse yeasts from the eastern part of Norway um, had largely disappeared, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. So uh, in, in western Norway, there's, like, there's a whole range of regions and different places where you can find it, uh, even if there's large areas where it's died out. But in eastern Norway, there's like two villages, basically, that are quite far apart. Those are the only places where we found it. Coming up. And then if you repeat this crime, you pay the same small fine again. But then, the third time, you lose everything you own and you have to leave the country.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Mm-hmm. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
1: Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa.
0: This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more.
1: BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739.
0: There's one more sponsor I should mention and that's for Menace, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcello talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District New England presents hard seltzer production by Zoom January 29th. District Eastern Canada has a webinar February 3rd. February 23rd is part one of a three-part webinar series on the topic of brewing CO2 and the current shortage affecting the industry. The first 25 registrations are discounted, so act fast. A couple of our veteran podcast guests will be putting on a webinar on the topic of standardized data collection with ASBC sampling plan. That's going to be on March 26th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 21st, and the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district
1: meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew.
0: Now back to the show. You wrote that Voss was something of a power center and that brewers from surrounding regions sourced brewing ingredients, including Vik from Voss. What's special about Voss? Why was that a focal point for brewers?
2: Well, so That's a good question. Um, I think it's a mix of things. So if you look at the map of Western Norway, uh, there is essentially only one district that has a sizable population. And isn't by the sea. And that's Voss. Horn- Hornindal is kind of close to that, but not quite in the same league. Uh, so it's, it's kind of, uh, is- it was isolated until, say, 1960 when people got cars. And 1960 is really close to the, the, the area, era when uh, things started turning around and farmhouse brewing started becoming more popular again from, say, 1980, 85. And Voss is also a uh is quite rich agriculturally. So people there were you know making money from farming up until the nineties in a lot of places. So it meant that uh, they had the, the brewing tradition, they still had the yeast, there was a lot of brewers, that's also why you had the yeast, and they had their own grain that uh they malted and sold. Even though it was illegal, technically, um, and whereas areas by the f- by the fjord, people had typically stopped uh, growing grain by then and switched to growing fruit and stuff like that for, for sale. And then the, it's a it's a really huge step when you stop growing grain because uh, then you have to start buying malt. And until 1992, buying your own malt or buying malt was illegal in Norway. Why is that? There was a um, there was a was called a beer law that was enacted in 1912, and uh, I think the purpose of it was uh, to stop uh, people from homebrewing. But uh, the farmhouse brewing tradition was so strong that they couldn't really interfere with that. So what they did was (laughs) they actually made a Norwegian purity law. But uh, the purity law allows juniper and mirica gale in addition to the other ingredients uh and then the other thing it does is it says okay you can brew at home but you have to make your own malt so that's what all the traditional brewers were doing and by adding this rule they they made it really hard for somebody to to just pick up brewing if they weren't already in the tradition
0: so you just said that i think it was in the in the 1980s um it became more popular What was the catalyst for that?
2: I don't know. Um, I guess it's it's kind of a turning point where people don't really see it as a status thing to buy food anymore because now everybody's doing it. And it turns more to, oh, you're maintaining this old tradition and wow, you know how to make beer and that's kind of cool. And the tide kind of turned, I guess.
0: Has the development of the farmhouse yeast registry and the work folks like Richard Priest have done to study these yeasts further reinvigorated farmhouse brewing in Norway? Or do things look pretty much like they did 10 or 20 years ago?
2: No, uh, there has been a change. So uh, I published a book in Norwegian on, on farmhouse brewing in 2016, and that led to a few things appearing on TV. And then um uh, there was this work that started to have the traditional brewing and quake UNESCO heritage listed, and people started getting interested abroad, and there was the scientific work that Richard did. And I think this kind of all this interest abroad in in using quake and breweries using it all around the world and so on has filtered back into the local newspapers as well. So there's been a there's been a change. People tell me that. Now people in Voss say, yeah, yeah, my grandpa was a brewer and he was famous for making good beer. And apparently you never heard that kind of thing five or ten years ago. That's cool. So there, there, there is a change, yeah.
0: Your article mentioned that there are now also some commercial farmhouse beers in Norway. What can you tell us about those? Um, yeah, there's,
2: <laughs> there's one guy in Stjordal who he's, he's always been a traditional brewer, makes his own malts. Uh, And he got permission to sell this, which is really, truly 100% uh, traditional farmhouse ale. And then some commercial breweries have picked it up. One in Voss and also one, uh, two breweries actually near Stjardal. They do, uh, they're they're craft breweries, but they have taken the tradition seriously and, and make what's really highly respectable uh replicas of, of the traditional farmhouse ale And then we have um two breweries that are we call them gypsy brewers, meaning they don't own a brew house and they just contract out, hire somebody's brew house to to brew their beers. And they also focus on uh traditional beers. So one of them is um there's a guy from near Hornindal who works with one of the traditional brewers there. They use his kike and his recipe and uh, try and make a, a replica of that beer, and there's another guy who is more creative, and does a lot of the different traditional styles with various twists and so on. So, the, but these beers are, for the most part, quite hard to get hold of,
0: um, unfortunately. What's your favorite out of the strange registered so far? Um, yeah, I
2: guess I should say that we it's a it's a registry of cultures. Um, so there's there's always more than one strain in each uh except for number uh number 3. It's a, it's a really difficult question. I mean they all have they all they're all suitable for different beers so it kind of depends on on the individual beer I would say. Um I've grown I've grown to like uh, number 43 Opsaug quite a lot. It's really easy to use and um ferments really quickly but it's it's kind of neutral so other ones are are better if you want a lot of yeast profile
0: what are some of the most interesting innovations you've seen or heard about in regards to brewing with these yeasts um
2: i don't know that i've seen any i mean we're still at the stage where i would say the farmhouse brewers know more about using these yeasts than we do um in a lot of ways we uh for the most part when people use these yeast they don't even use like the full culture with all of the strains and so on so i feel like commercial brewing has there's a lot of uh, unexplored potential here that we haven't really made full use of yet um i guess that's my answer that we we uh we should we should do more to learn from the traditional guys before we start thinking about innovations.
0: So what do you think the future looks like? What's the next frontier for, for all of this?
2: Uh, it's several things, I think. I mean, the most obvious in one way is uh, to look at other yeasts beyond the quakes, because the uh, the Baltic yeasts are really different from the Norwegian ones. The Russian ones are different again. Uh, And then we have the two groups of Norwegian ones that nobody's really looked at yet. Uh, And then, of course, also these these, uh, techniques with using the full culture. Uh, In some cases, these cultures also contain bacteria that don't make the beer sour, but add flavor. And (laughs) nobody's even thought about touching that one yet. Um, And then, of course, you have all the other things from the tradition, like... Uh, all of these insane methods for making malt, uh, the different brewing processes, working with juniper <laughs> i mean this this area is so big it's like uh it's almost like an alternate universe of brewing that commercial brewers have basically only touched the tip of the iceberg so far.
0: We're recording this episode just a few days before Christmas, so I thought I should ask you to talk about a recent post I found on your blog titled, When Not Brewing Christmas Beer Was Illegal. What can you tell us about (laughs) that story?
2: Uh, That's an interesting one. So uh, pretty much every Norwegian kind of knows this factoid, that uh, the Viking Age law, called uh, the Gulathing law, required everyone to brew for Christmas. And then uh, people tend to stop short there and not know anything more. Uh, but but the full story is actually quite interesting because um, when you read the law, it's it's quite interestingly formulated in the sense that it says uh, you have to use this much malt. Uh, you have to brew by this date. You have to bless the, the beer in the name of the Virgin Mary and Christ. Uh but if you don't do it, there's like a there's a small fine, and then if, if you repeat this crime, you pay the same small fine again. But then the third time, you lose everything you own and you have to leave the country. <laughs> so That's pretty serious. It, it's it, yeah, but not the first two times, <laughs> right? And of course, there is a reason why it's like that. Uh, these these laws were, were written by people or they weren't actually written but they were put together by people who, who really considered what they were doing so uh, if you look at the context this was introduced by, by the Norwegian king who was the first king who was a Christian who was not a pagan believing in Odin and Thor and all of that and he was pushing for, for the country to become Christianized and this law is part of that. So the, uh, what people used to do was to brew the beer and then uh, dedicate it to the old gods. So implicitly, what this law is saying is you're forbidden from doing that and you must bless it in, name, in the name of the new gods. And of course, there was a lot of resistance to this. So that's why, okay, you, you screw that once. Okay, that's fine. But you know what happens if you screw up two more times, right? So you, it's kind of uh, almost a compromise solution.
0: All right, very good. um Do you mind? I, I'm just curious. I want to. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the experiences I've had brewing with these yeasts commercially, and just to see if you can help me figure anything out. So I've brewed quite a few. I've, I've brewed probably about a half dozen batches in a, in a commercial setting using. Um, first, I use the the Voss strain or the Voss culture, and I say I, uh, it's like there's only one of them, but I I procured this culture from a, a yeast lab that I w- work with. It was uh, a, a culture they had, you know, labeled as, as from Voss. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so I brewed a few, few with that. And then, um and then I did the same thing, but with another culture that they had with under the Hornendal label. And in both cases, you know, I was terrified to pitch at these temperatures, you know, that I had been reading about and that we just talked about, but I did so. And in both cases, uh, the the fermentations you know began very, very rapidly and um, and then of course the the brewery not being you know forty degrees Celsius in, in the ambient environment there and actually being more like twenty, you know, even despite the the heat produced from fermentation, the temperature would kind of start to taper off. And the uh, fermentation slowed down considerably. And, and that was more so the case with the Hornendal um, culture. And um, uh, so much so that I actually, and this goes back to your, your friend with the, the insulated blanket, right? So much so that I ended up um, having to heat up the tank to, to really jumpstart the fermentation again. Does that surprise you?
2: Not really, no. Um, well, I wonder what your batch size is. Uh, 10 barrels. So what would that be in liters? Uh
0: so that would be like about um let's call it not quite 12 hectoliters. Oh, okay. So a reasonable size, okay.
2: So I would have I would have expected the yeast to uh produce enough heat to actually raise the temperature. So I'm a little surprised at that, but uh it also depends how strong the beer is, right? So so how much uh what was the OG?
0: Yeah, so th- th- it was um Several different batches of varying strength, but nothing off the charts high. I think the highest one was probably like sixteen Plato or something like that.
2: Right. Yeah. Which is quite weak for by the from a Norwegian perspective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, they might have more oxygen than you, and they might also uh, for Hornendal for example, they wouldn't boil the wort, so there would be more nutrients in there. But my my impression in general is that these yeasts get to this point where they just go we're done now and they just drop everything. Well, this seems to be stronger when you have a complete culture when you don't have just one strain but um, I just brewed my Christmas beer like uh,
0: last weekend. To stay out of trouble right?
2: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, when you use the, the full culture like that uh especially the ones that are used to being harvested from the top on top of the beer, you get something that looks almost like porridge it's like a thick layer that really floats on top of the beer um and i wanted to get rid of that so i moved it into the cold and it took like maybe an hour and then the thick layer was almost gone so and i used to, i used to tilt so i could see that the temperature of the beer was dropping really rapidly and that seemed to just you know send the whole yeast into a nose dive and i see that traditionally people were you know they were brewing in wood and but they would also insulate the fermenter um, typically with a blanket or something like that and, and quite a few of them would move it into a warm room they literally say they put it next to the fire so it seems they really were concerned to keep the temperature up, and it looks like that's uh, kind of a general pattern. It's it's not a uh, it doesn't look like it's a totally a given, but when when the temperature drops, there is definitely a risk that the yeast is gonna gonna stop completely. Yes,
0: I asked uh, Richard about this um, at one point, um, just because obviously it's it's really hard to get any oxygen to dissolve into wort at those high temperatures, right? And, and he indicated that perhaps um, the traditional brewers using open fermentation and maybe had more surface area were able to get, you know, the 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 yeast had constant access to oxygen, is sort of what he was implying. I believe. Any thoughts on were aeration for these uh, these yeasts, or do you think that perhaps traditionally? these brewers were just pitching uh, overabundance of, uh, of, of yeast. So their pitch rate was very, very high.
2: We have uh, basically no information on the pitch rates historically. Um, so Sigmund seems to pitch something close to a normal amount, whereas the guys uh, up north, so in the Royal area, they seem to pitch like way below. Uh, but it varies from brewer to brewer. So it's kind of, that one is is difficult to get a handle on. Uh, But what Richard says about the open fermenters and so on seems totally spot on to me. So usually the fermenter is like, not like a barrel with no lid because it tends to be a little wider than that. Uh, And then you just throw a blanket over that. So there, you know, there will be oxygen coming in. Absolutely. (laughs)
0: That was Lars Marius Garshall here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for links to the TQ paper, to the yeast registry, to Lars' blog, and more. Oh, and by the way, you can save up to 15% on historical brewing techniques by Lars Marius Garshall when you check out using promo code PODCAST at the Master Brewers Bookstore, now through January 31st, 2021.
2: I I My full of courage.
0: I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues.